All right, inappropriate Earl. You're wondering, oh no, another nasally voice. Uh, and guess what? Yes, yet again, unfortunately for you people in Charlottesville, the Jews will replace you because Eric Abenante is hosting yet again. Um, I, I've, uh, I've done two podcasts already with Earl. The first time we interviewed about his Road to Roast battle. The second time we did uh, his Showtime show, I'm Dying Up Here. And now the the trilogy, the the third TV appearance of his career in one year after like 17 years of stand-up where he didn't get on TV at all. And uh, it's been fun to interview him. So now I'm, I'm excited to interview him about the jellies. And uh, Earl, thanks for having me in your place on Christmas Eve of all nights. This is pretty fun. How depressing. <laughs> yeah. This is how I'm spending Christmas Eve. But hey. <laughs> Uh, it's good to uh, have a show to talk about. I mean, uh, the first two episodes you did, two of the uh, more popular uh, episodes. Yeah, despite me, which is like surprising everybody. But um, first of all, I I've always wanted to ask this. So did you grow up in a Jewish and Christian household? Was it mixed? Uh, like, did you have do you have like mixed lineages in that way? Uh, well, my mom's last name is Weinman. It's clearly Jewish, <laughs> and uh, she converted to marry my father, James Skakel, because this is back in the, I think, 50s when yeah. uh, the Catholic Church wouldn't recognize uh, a marriage unless the other party who was not Catholic converted. So I have Jewish blood in me, but I was raised Catholic, altar boy, all that good stuff. <laughs> um, but if you go to dinner with me, you'll see the Jewish side of me. Yeah, there's a there's a little bit of Jew in Earl, but there's a, there's a lot that's not Jewish about him. The the hockey scoring titles, um, the uh, the wrestling adoration, the height, you know, the uh, the the performance acumen. There's a lot of things that aren't Jewish about him. But then you see it in his writing and uh, in in his uh, organization in here. I'm a neat freak, which probably most people would not. Uh you know, put that together through my uh, stand-up or personality, but I'm um, like Christian Bale. So I, I guess I, I'm actually pretty fascinated about this because, um, you know, my my mom's Jewish, my dad's Catholic, and so I grew up in a mixed religion household. And so, I mean, in the end, both of them really didn't give a shit. So they both really, it was my grandma who was religious, but um, with your, your mom, so she converted in the 50s. Did... Did she still, was she still like Jewish and act Jewish and have like Jewish culture in your life? Or is it just like you were, uh, she kind of hid that? Oh, she hid that. I mean, my mom uh, was a, we could do another podcast on my mom. Uh, <laughs> she was an interesting bird. Uh, I can't reveal too much about her because it might give some of the roast battle vultures ammunition. <laughs> but uh, she had a uh, incredibly interesting lifestyle uh of her own uh that's worthy of a tv show i mean raised in cartersville georgia jewish her uh dad was a legendary high school football coach oh, that's uh, cool. like bear bryant that's really you know, cool there's a football stadium named after him in cartersville georgia Whoa. Uh, but he was killed when she was nine oh. her mom uh, was a, a severe alcoholic and uh uh, some uh, possible uh, abuse issues there. So uh, she had a wild background. She's very secretive, uh, which explains my secretiveness. Uh, and then my dad was like, you know, the typical Irish Catholic, hard 
partying, drinking, whale killing, uh, <laughs> Jacques Cousteau like <laughs> whale uh, killing character. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my dad was uh, on the cover of uh, Time magazine. No, Life magazine. I'm sorry, Life magazine uh, for killing a, a huge killer whale. So uh, you know, it's a weird parenting group, but effective. Strange, but effective. <laughs> I love. I love that. So it. It. You guys have a very interesting lineage. There's some very non-Jewish stuff. A, a, a wineman, but there was some football in there. That's incredible. Like, uh, so that's part of why. So is that kind of why you like the Steelers? Uh, is that is that does that bleed into any of your family history at all? Yeah, it does because my father, uh, my father had an amazing array of friends from uh, prostitutes to billionaires. And uh, one of his uh, friends on the uh, latter half of that uh, sliding scale was Art Rooney, the Art Rooney. Uh, Whoa. The OG owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. So uh, every time the Steelers would win a Super Bowl in the 70s and they won four, uh, I would get uh, about a week later a game-used Super Bowl ball. You know, I opened it up, and there was dirt on it, and you know, so you knew it was real, and uh, it was autographed by the whole team or wow. most of the whole team. So that's basically nine Hall of Fame autographs on one football. You know, uh, is it like so? It's like the Lynn Swan, team. Lynn Swan, Stallworth, uh, Mel Blunt, Ham Lambert, uh, Joe Green, yeah, Joe Green, yeah, Elsie uh, Greenwood, Dwight Holmes, no, no, Dwight White and Ernie Holmes, uh, you know, Bradshaw, Harris. Uh, Rocky Blyer, uh, Andy Russell, one I mean, of the one of the most talented littered teams. If you just look at pure like Hall of Famers on a team, like they, oh, were, you, they were stacked. I mean, to, I mean, you'll never have a team like that in any sports league because they all now have salary caps. You know, where literally nine out of the twenty-two starters were Hall of Famers. I mean, that's insane. But uh, from what I recall from history, it was through the draft, wasn't it? it? Wasn't like wasn't like one or two like really good drafts. Like they had a really bad, they had a couple of really bad years. And then I feel like, if I remember correctly, they had like one draft where they like throughout like one to seven rounds, they picked like a lot of Hall of Famers in that one draft, right? Yeah, I think the first draft they. Uh, drafted like uh mean joe green and uh you know i'm not up on i think bradshaw came pretty soon and then harris from penn state and uh swan and stallworth and then ham and lambert and uh it was just an amazing uh you know the only team that's probably ever come close to having that much talent is the uh, 80s edmonton oilers hockey of course yeah. but you know they had uh, Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, Yari Curry, Glenn Anderson, Paul Coffey, Grant Fuhr. Uh, so six Hall of Famers on a 20-man roster. That's It's pretty close. But uh, still not. I mean, the Steeler, that salary cap of the 70 Steelers would be $300 million. Yeah. I mean, every guy would be making $10 million and worthy of it. Yeah, and even more so. Yeah, it's like they've all be maxed out. But it 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 was it, it's it could it maybe could be accomplished because it, it was done through the draft. It wasn't done through free agency, so there was like good scouting involved. And well, back uh, then there was no free agency, you know, yeah. until uh, Kurt Flood and baseball, uh, you know, in the uh, you know, I think the early seventies, uh, you know, said I want to market my services to other teams when my contract's up. Uh, but in football, that hadn't taken place in a while. Um, so it was done mainly through the draft. 
about the only other team that built a franchise uh, through the draft. It, it was in hockey again, the New York Islanders. Because even the Gretzky was traded to uh, from the Indianapolis Racers to the Oilers. Uh, but the Islanders did it primarily. 90% of their team was through the draft. Uh, so it's so, but my dad was friends with Art Rooney and uh, that's great. And like an idiot, though, I would play with them. I was, uh, even though I have two brothers and two sisters, um, and we're all very close to this day. Uh, I mean, we're kind of raised like wolves, we don't talk a lot, but like when someone comes at one of us, we all five, uh, you know, attack if we have to. Um, <laughs> we roast in a way. So I was uh, a big family, but I was lonely as a kid from the standpoint of we weren't like raised like beaver cleaver so i would throw these footballs against a brick wall in my backyard and it would bounce back to me perfectly so i would play catch with myself <laughs> and i ruined these footballs i mean those footballs today and i would never sell them but you know nine hall of fame autographs each ball is probably worth 40, 50 grand. Oh, yeah. Those go off pretty big at an auction. I actually think you're undervaluing. Yeah, I mean, it, especially when you factor in that they were used in the Super Bowl. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, and the nostalgia of that period, um, this this could bring us back to the jellies, but the, nostal the nostalgia of that period, there's a lot of people in the 70s who are like they want they want to relive that era they they're they have money now when they were a kid and they uh, were adoring that team it's kind of like with tyler the creator when he he got money and he's like i'm gonna make a show about the 90s essentially he had a lot of like 90s reminiscence in there i think those footballs are actually worth um six figures each plus like i mean if they were in those mint, are artifacts of history yeah. i mean if um, they were in mint condition which you know i you know back then there wasn't really to my knowledge a memorabilia craze so it's not you know like now you catch barry bonds 715th home run ball you get it you put it in a plastic case immediately um or straight you, out of mccovey cove yeah right off or if you know you uh like i was watching uh I think the Colts game, yes, Colts and the Ravens. And uh, the Colts quarterback was under heavy pressure, so he just threw the football in the stands. And the guy who caught it, you could tell, realized this is valuable. He literally wrapped his jacket around the ball, <laughs> didn't let anyone touch it. And I guarantee you, as soon as he left that stadium, he went on Amazon and football case. And that ball is probably in a case right now. Uh, even at my most cautious of levels back when i was a kid i probably would have just thrown them in a closet <laughs> so you know because autographs fade you know yeah. if you don't encase them instantly so uh but they're probably still would have been pretty valuable that's uh i mean not that not that you need it but that that's cool that's cool Listen, as hell that you have i mean that's uh that's a nice that could be a nice nest egg one day that's impressive it's a couple hundred thousand dollars what you think oh, yeah. which is crazy four balls yeah, footballs. I mean, uh, but that could go in Canton, Ohio, you know, and the Football Hall of Fame. Those are those are that kind of level of memorabilia. I'm not talking like you know, the, we're uh, a lot of different people could be vying for those. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean I'm pretty familiar with the memorabilia market. You know, baseballs, footballs. Uh, you know, uh, I've become really into uh, music memorabilia. You know, certain guitars are selling for 
hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, uh, you know, there's something uh, out there for everyone. And if, even if it's a obscure item, certainly Super Bowl balls aren't obscure. But, you know, I saw one of Vinnie Vincent's pink guitars uh, for auction and it got like a hundred grand. Oh, yeah. And the, the actual value of the guitars, maybe five grand. Like if you went into a store and said, I want a Jackson Flying V, you, you know, so. You've kind of got this like Forrest Gump like quality where you've just been in a lot of different like historical moments. Because like, didn't you meet like, there's like OJ Simpson and like Kareem, weren't they in your neighborhood or something like that? Both neighbors, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar lived up Stone Canyon Road. Uh, his house uh, was uh, shaped like the fabulous form, I guess, apparently. <laughs> really? Yeah, he was a, I don't know, he was claustrophobic or something, so he didn't like uh, corners. Or, <laughs> so his house was circular. Um, OJ lived up the street. Uh, James Kahn lived up the street. Uh, Will Chamberlain lived across the canyon. Uh, Stallone lived with uh, Susan Anton, right, you know, 500 feet from our house. Uh, Harry Nielsen. The fifth Beatle, some people say. Uh, I used to go to his house all the time as a kid. Really? Um, I'll never forget. Like, he had a basketball court in his house. <laughs> and this was before stuff like that was popular. Like, now, you know, P. Diddy has a you know, full-length basketball yeah. court and LeBron James. and But uh, Harry Nielsen, uh, his house was had a recording studio in it. Like, That's amazing. Oh, yeah. It was really, uh, you know, if I ever get, like, tons of money... You know, someone asked me if I would buy my childhood home because it's in a really nice part of Bel Air, and I would actually want to buy Harry Nielsen's house. Oh, that's so cool! Because it sits a little higher up than ours, <laughs> and uh, just I don't know what it looks like now, but uh, you know, a basketball court, recording studio. I could do this podcast in the recording studio, and you have like a lot of nostalgia to that that area. There's a lot of good memories there and stuff. I remember when they were building it. I would go and walk around this the skeleton of the house and just uh I mean, climb the wood nails <laughs> how i didn't die of tetanus uh <laughs> you know because open nails were everywhere and uh but you know i'm surprised i didn't die as a kid <laughs> because my dad had a gun closet right next to oh. his room oh my god and this was an arsenal uh because my dad was a big game hunter uh, wow. so rifles uh, 44 magnums uh silencers uh you know probably <laughs> 10 different kinds of very high powered rifles shells all over the place wow. none of them with the safety lock on that's hilarious because like in the zombie apocalypse movies they always like find this house that's like loaded with guns and i always thought that was like fictional but apparently there are there are these houses you're saying that just have like arsenals everywhere my house <laughs> that's incredible but i mean i would literally put the barrel of the gun to my face <laughs> and go oh this is cool uh, you know, I mean, it's really amazed that uh, amazing. It's really amazed. Uh, <laughs> I'm really amazed that I didn't pull the trigger or one of my brothers or sisters. You know, we were all uh, wacky kids like we would play pretty rough. I mean, we would play tackle football in our backyard and I mean, tackle football. Well, that's a good thing. You didn't play platoon or something. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it was full I mean, metal jacket. Yeah. My brother would do backflips into the pool from the, the roof, which is probably a two and a half story roof. So, you know, one miscalculation and you're paralyzed. Wow. Uh, Pulling an almost famous. Yeah. I mean, uh, so it, it's amazing uh, that, <laughs> uh, 
someone wasn't killed at our house. <laughs> God, that's amazing. That's that's a way you know. It's uh, so that's why when I'm at like a wild comedy club or at a wild party, it's like this is nothing. Yeah, the, the people, the people you know, it's just uh, it's just incredible. Well, I mean, I imagine I just. I told someone this the other night. Growing up at Bel Air Country Club was the greatest education I could have ever have asked for, uh, because I was around degenerate gamblers, drug addicts in the caddy yard. I mean, all the caddies—I don't know what they're like today, but back then, uh, they were drunks and coke addicts and just like literally like Caddyshack, but on a much higher level of booze and drugs. So as a kid, these were my friends, like because I, didn't, you know, I was socially awkward. Although I was popular in high school, like Bel Air Country Club was like my social uh, scene, which is weird because there was really no kids my age up there um, outside of maybe one or two. So I grew up, you know, going to the racetrack with, you know, degenerate gamblers because um, there weren't a lot of chicks at Bel Air Country Club. A couple members' daughters, but it really wasn't, I wasn't really into chicks at the time. Uh, I made up for that later, but uh, so to be around like bullshitters in the comedy world now, which there are many, uh, <laughs> it's easy for me because it's like, dude, I've been around so many people. The highest than you. level, yeah. The highest level of like the people who made it to Bel Air Country yeah, Club with their wealth of bullshitting from scamming their way in, and you know, like when I say I was around gamblers, I mean these guys gamble ten grand a hole. Uh, you know, they would bet cars and, and you know, Rolexes on one shot. Uh, I mean, you were saying your dad knew Art Rooney. This is a guy who eventually was going to be the Irish ambassador in the Obama administration. Like, we're talking, like, the biggest level of people. Right. I think that know? was Dan Rooney, oh, his okay. kid. I mean, that oh. shows you how long ago this is, is that, you know, Dan Rooney looks a little green around. Well, he died, but his son looks a little green around the gills. Oh, yeah. Um, which is the only thing that sucks about watching football in high def is when they pan up to the owner's box. <laughs> you can see Jerry's eyes. Oh they, my God. they get wider set every time you see him. Yeah. And the pock marks. <laughs> I don't think I've seen, Robert Kraft even looks a little rough, but he's always like dressed nice. Uh, so it was such an education for me to grow up in the area. You know, I tell people all the time I'm street smart. And people are like, well, how could you be street smart in Bel Air? But it, it's just, it's a whole nother level of street. Yeah, so. it's like, it just, they have money partly because, you know, this yeah. is America and, you know, bullshitting your way to the top is actually one of the most successful, like, efficient ways to do it. Well, I mean, I told a ex-girlfriend of mine, you know, two or three girlfriends ago, you know, uh, she worked at a nefarious location, let's just say. And I would always warn her, hey, this guy's a fucking, he's trying to fuck you. Or this guy's, oh, he, she had this one guy, oh, I can get you in and auditions and all that stuff. I'm like, he's full of shit. And she would always kind of fight me on it. Like, how do you know? What do you know about, you know, street freaks? And I'm like, I grew up around the best, <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, it was a great education. And it's really helped my navigating the comedy world. So... Yeah, I mean, uh, we'll tie this back. Your mom has uh, one of my favorite quotes ever um, about uh, something about like the biggest dick in the room or whatever. What is it exactly? My mom told me, uh, and it's why I'm humble to this day, even though I've never really been successful enough to be cocky. Um, 
she said, uh, be nice to everyone because there's always someone with a bigger dick in the room. <laughs> and she told me that when I was like 12 years old. So I was like, what the? <laughs> so I'm like, anytime I would go into a room, uh, you know, like at my dad's country club or like when I was in high school, I was like, okay, someone's got a bigger dick in here than me because I got a big dick. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh my God, that guy's dick is bigger. Than I, I and would then you see OJ Simpson, you're like, oh yeah. Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe my mom was right. Well, but it's true though. Like, you know, uh, there's always someone in the room who's more successful than you are. Uh, you know, on any level, if you're at an open mic, you might think all of us are losers. We're no one's successful in this room, but there's someone in that room who maybe just got hired by Comedy Central or Netflix or just got a, a, their first late night spot. Or, you know, you go to the comedy store and there you really see it. Like, you know, you see one guy who just got on Conan, but then there's a guy or girl who got on Netflix. And then there's, you know, you see Russell Peters walk in and then it's like, oh, wow, I, I'm not as important as I think. So, uh, you know, but I that's probably the best advice she's ever uh, I've ever been given is just be humble. And, uh, you know, like as much as I think this podcast is successful or whatever, there's Joe Rogan's podcast. Yeah, you know, in the story, Carolla, the Adam you know, Carolla, the, yeah. uh, there's Howard Stern, the, yeah. Mark Maron, uh, yeah. you know, uh, so, um, and you know, as much as this year has been good for me career wise, you know, with uh, doing well on Roast Battle and I'm dying up here in the jellies, uh, you know, you've got uh, Chris D'Elia who's killing it constantly, and then. You know, so uh, I guess the main uh, point of this is just be uh, humble because you never know when you're going to lose it. It's, that's what I was going to ask. So, like, um, you know, you've you've kind of had this, uh, you know, foundation of I've got to be grounded, you know, the Bel Air, you know, from Bel Air. And now you've been on three shows in a year with names attached to them like Jeff Ross and Jim Carrey and Tyler, the creator from all your shows kind of being attached to them and does it are you still like does it make you feel any different from where you used to be do you still feel the same or do you feel like somewhere near the horizon that trap door is going to come out and it, you're going to kind of revert back to square one well or, you know i mean you know i mean like you know uh, all three shows could be canceled tomorrow no, they're not. You know, I'm dying up here is coming back for season two. Mazel tov. Uh, that, you know, it's awesome. But, I, you know, even on that, I don't know if I'm coming back. You know, they they haven't told me. Uh, you know, um, and the jellies uh, was a hit on Adult Swim. But, you know, they could say, hey, we want to, I don't know, have someone else do the voice of his dad. Uh, it's not likely. But, uh, and, you know, in Roast Battle, uh, even if they bring people back for next season, they might, ah, we don't want to roll back, you know. So, or... The reverse could happen. You know, they could say, Earl, we want to make you a featured roaster. I'm dying up here. Could say, we want to make you a series regular. The jellies. I mean, I'm already well, I mean, you know, I can't go much higher on the jellies. Yeah, you're uh, one of the principal characters. You know, I'm the dad. Yeah. Second in the credits or whatever. So I, there's not much more I can do on that. But, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, I've seen people be very, very cocky and, uh, you know their shows get canceled and they never work again so yeah. uh but that's the mom in me she was paranoid and uh somewhat negative by nature so that definitely uh you know stuck with me like <laughs> i'm the type that if i won the lottery i'd be like 
my first thought wouldn't be, oh my God, I get to buy a car. I'd be like, fuck, I got to pay taxes on that. Uh, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Well, see, the, the Jewish side didn't really leave her after all, you know? Oh, no. She was <laughs> incredibly paranoid, uh, you know, a, a negative thinker to a degree. Um, but, you know, she was an awesome mom. I mean, she you know and my dad was great too like they raised me uh, bizarrely uh <laughs> you know they slept in separate rooms um but they loved each other they were just uh you know my dad ruled by fear he was a pretty big dude well, he's really powerful right well he, he never lifted a weight in his life but he was just naturally strong uh you know you would not want to cross my dad i'll just uh i'll just put it that way you yeah. know, uh, someone who reminds me of my dad a lot in the comedy world is Don Barris. Like, I don't oh, okay. think Don goes to the gym, but I would not want to get uh, Don mad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's yeah. just naturally strong. Uh, like, I go to the gym every day. I'm Don's probably three times stronger than me. Uh, same thing with my brother, Andrew. Uh, I, he hasn't been into a gym in 30 years. Uh, Old man strength. Oh, he's like uh, James Harrison. Yeah, he's like uh, he's just a barrel-chested, uh, almost looks like a sumo wrestler. Uh, he'd kill you if he wanted to. Yeah. Um. So, uh, you know, just try and live a good life. That's crazy. That's cool. Um. So, uh, transitioning to the jellies. Um. Have you? Have you? How did you even build the relationships to? get the gig on the jellies how did that trend how did that come about well it's uh one night at roast battle when i was uh doing the house heckler hater uh whatever you'd like to call it. it's gone over several uh reincarnations um uh tyler the creator was sitting next to the uh at the time they were called the all negro wave I won't say what they were called before that era, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the the two white guys here cannot say what they were called yeah, before. The all blank wave, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, and I thought he was friends with Jamar, you know, because he was sitting next to Jamar, and I just thought, oh, this guy's one of Jamar's wacky friends. I'll just kind of rip on him for a little bit, and uh, I don't really remember what I said that night. You know, it's two years ago or whatever, a year and a half ago um and uh yeah i i re recall going relatively deep on him just making a couple sickle cell jokes and t-cell jokes i think there was a gay uh battler that night so i said something about uh why don't we get the guy sitting next to jamar up there we could have sickle cell versus t-cells <laughs> you know just dumb you know stuff like that uh but that's like right before comedy central got involved so you know the show went a little deeper with you know the uh wackiness you were in your prime back then that was when yeah. you're bringing the super heat well i mean you know it's it obviously it's great that it's on tv and you know comedy central's done great things with the show but you know before they came on board it was uh kind of like a little more wild west that's when i became a fan was when or when uh the first time i saw uh roast battle and earl do the house hater thing it was yeah it was just it's like a, really it was the element of the show that you've never seen before and the wave obviously but with you and the wave and moses it's it's insane so that's so me thinking like that uh tyler the creator was thinking something similar and was just like amazed at what you were doing uh well i mean uh like i said i didn't know who he was like because uh, i don't listen to rap really i listen to like 80s metal and everyone knows if you listen to this podcast what kind of music i like um but uh i remember in the parking lot afterwards 
I saw Tyler and his crew uh, talking to Gerard Carmichael on the uh, driveway of the hotel next door. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, if he's friends with Gerard, maybe I better apologize to him. Or, you know, like at least say, hey, man, no hard feelings. Uh, so I walk up the driveway and it's like probably 10 black dudes, uh, you know, and uh, they all kind of see me coming and they stop. And I said to Tyler, not even knowing who he was still, hey, man, uh, I was just kidding around. You know, you know, it's just a character, you know, I, th- I probably blame Moses for it. I'm like, you know, Moses wants me to do that wacky shit. And uh he looks at me and goes, my, <laughs> you, my, and I'm like, can I call you that? <laughs> and his writing partner, Lionel, who's this huge dude, is like, no. <laughs> um, and then like, I think two days later, I got a call from someone uh, saying, hey, that that was Tyler, the creator. He, he wants you to be the voice of his dad on his cartoon. That's awesome. And so... Uh, you know, the first, it's kind of like Roast Battle, you know, where there was, a, you know, the first season of Roast Battle was called the Jeff Ross Roast Masters, and it wasn't filmed in Montreal. Uh, we did a first season of The Jellies that was on his phone app for Golf Media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was pretty, pretty out there. Like, you know, it, was, it really, uh, we went all in. And uh, I don't know of the... Uh, conversations that happened but i'm assuming adult swim because tyler had already had the loiter squad on adult swim i i'm sure it was like hey you know if you uh maybe lighten it up on the wackiness we'll put it on adult swim uh and then you know we did uh the first season uh this season this year and uh i haven't been told anything but i'd be shocked if it didn't get a season two it's it is pretty popular. It's 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 really funny. But I want to get into this uh, really quickly. Um, do you, it's kind of funny and ironic that you're at roast battle. You're playing a character, um, Tommy. You're kind of doing like a version of Tommy, essentially, right? You I know? don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't want to get sued. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, anyways, uh, Earl is playing a character, and then th- he parlayed that into a voiceover character on adult swim. I think that's really cool. I, and do you, do you really think, do you really think that that was in essence training to find a voice that's not yours necessarily. It's a caricature of someone else, but that's that you have to create a character for when you do a voiceover for the jelly. So do you think that, that the roast, that the house hater thing, do you think that that helped you create a character for the jellies? Well, I mean, that shows you this business and how crazy it is that one person held me down at the comedy store anyway for, you know, years and built out of my frustration and bitterness uh, with this person. Um, I That's the only reason I went up to Roast Battle and, and started doing that character was just to be like, fuck this guy. I'm going to make fun of him in front of, you know, everyone and because uh, he didn't work on Tuesday nights, so I thought, oh, you know, it'll never really get back to him. He doesn't really keep up with things. I mean, to my knowledge, he didn't even have a fucking computer. So, <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, you know, which is why the comedy store was kind of a dark era at times. Uh, you know, he was so out of touch that, like, when a famous comic would come up and say, "Hey, can I get a guest spot or or whatever," he would not know who they were. Um, so. Uh, you know, it's just weird that because of me getting fucked with by this guy, 
led to me doing this uh, side character on a show that, you know, I mean, no one knew how big Roast Battle was going to get. I mean, you know, I, I was there from day one and, you know, the first couple weeks, like, uh, you know, was, you know, wasn't terribly packed or, you know, it was open micer versus open micer, uh, you know, like Jim Diggity against, you know, this person. And, you know, frankly, you know, the first couple months, and this is going to sound a little cocky, but I, I don't think anyone can argue it. Uh, people weren't coming for the battles. They were coming for me and Moses. That's and, why I became a fan. But I mean, the wave even hadn't, you know, the wave was still kind of going through uh, a, a growth process of, you know, I think the OG wave was uh, the great key soul, uh, Jack Knight. Yeah, Jack Knight was a part of it. And, uh, you know, I, I think Jamar was kind of in and out. And then, you know, a couple months in, Jeremiah came on and then Willie came on and then Jamar and the wave that we know today, you know, uh, took over and, and became, you know, the focal aspect of the show uh but, but and coach t's always been there like coach t is still the coach t to me is the star of the show one of the founding fathers i mean he's so fast and so quick i mean i had a boys in the hood joke once uh i forget what it was i think one of the battlers looked like ricky who got shot in the end of boys in the hood and i i threw out a, a ricky from boys in the hood line and literally two seconds later coach t has Cuba Gooding Jr.'s uh, line from when Ricky got shot. Like, I I literally don't know how he had that queued up. You know, because it's not like I tell Coach T before uh, the beginning of the show, hey, I'm going to do a Boys in the Hood line. I'm going to do a, a, I don't know, a Predator joke. You know, if I did a Predator joke, Coach T would have the Predator noise. Like, he's unbelievable. Um, but, you know, people were coming, uh, you know, to primarily see me and Moses do our shtick because we just had an instant chemistry. So, uh, but, you know, it just goes to show you the craziness of this business that something so small has ended up getting me on three TV shows. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the cool lessons I've learned from like really talented people like you and other stories. It's like, it doesn't matter how long you hold down a talented person. Talent is like a life jacket. Like you can push someone down deep into the depths of the ocean, but the further down you push them, eventually they'll pop up above the surface because of that talent. But I believe that. Yeah. I mean, I do think, uh, you know, you have to be delusional in this business. Yeah. But I think what saved me is my delusion was realistic. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think you have to be, uh, which doesn't make sense. It's like, well, if you're delusional, how can you be realistic? But it's like saying the difference between a guess and an educated guess. Right. I mean, an I educated mean, guess based you know, on what you knew. I've gotten laughs since the fourth grade play. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, so it's not completely delusional to think I could make it in stand-up comedy. Uh, but it would be freakishly delusional to think at the age of 49, I could make it in the NFL. <laughs> after not having played football since high school. You, yeah. you could sit there and go, I'm good enough to play in the NFL, but you know, I'm probably not. Yeah. So. There, there are those stories in comedy, like Rodney Dangerfield famously uh, toiled away for like 30 years. And then and I think his mid fifties pop. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's not like Seinfeld was a young and when he, I mean, he made it a little late thirties. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's the one thing I think that should keep everyone going in the world of stand up is you can be 19 and make it. You can be 50 and make it. Uh, 
you know, of course, it, there's not a ton of people who make it when they're older, but, uh, you know, it, it's possible. Yeah. Someone's got to make it. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the, um, one of the things I wanted to ask, uh, is I think I see a corollary, uh, between the jellies and roast battle in that you're one of the two white guys in the, uh, in the show that are like major players on both uh, pieces and the jellies, uh, Blake Anderson, uh, does a great job voicing. He does like this cool record store owner guy. He's really, uh, He's, he's really funny in it. But you're basically like the main white guy in it. And then in Roast Battle, that was essentially your... Uh, you were the main white guy in that. Um, and I have experience in this. I, I'm like the only white guy involved in a show I do called Secret Black People Meeting. Can you kind of describe what it's like to be the one or two white guys in a primarily not white environment when, you tried, when you're trying to do comedy and stuff like that? Uh, it's not that hard because, uh, this goes back to, uh, advice I've often given out on this podcast of, uh, you know, be nice to everyone. You know, Jimmy Carr gave me the best advice ever. Uh, worry about your side of the road and be funny. Um, and I've done that on every show I've ever worked on, you know, uh, you know, certainly Moses didn't need a sidekick like me, but you know, uh, I was nice. I never, you know, tried to overtake the show or, or, you know, make it about me. I mean, I always thought, at least on Roast Battle, the house hater is like the pepper on the steak, um, you know, and, and on the jellies, it's the same thing. You know, I'm not, I mean, I am now, but, you know, I'm not a voiceover actor, uh, but, you know, I'm nice. I showed up on time. I did my lines. I worked fast. Um, I stayed after my role was done in case they needed another voice. Now it's hard for me to do another voice other than, you know, my voice, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure they noticed that, uh, you know, there's many other professional voiceover actors they could have used. Um, and the same thing with I'm dying up here, uh, especially on that show where it was, uh, I was only supposed to be in one episode, but, you know, I showed up at the table read. I was funny. Um, it's just two lines. But uh, I did those lines. I, I showed up on time. Didn't annoy anybody. And uh, they brought me back for four episodes. So, uh, but the point of that is uh, that's why I can be the only primarily white guy on an all-black show. Uh, and same thing with Roast Battle. Uh, it's, uh, you know, with Roast Battle, I had to prove my value outside of the house haters, you know, because I'm sure Comedy Central at one point looked at that and go, well, we love Earl, but we can't really have that on TV. Um, you know, this Archie Bunker, you know, out of control, like maniac, uh, like a racist Stadler and Waldorf. Uh, so I was like, all right, well, I better start battling. Um, and then, you know, I was good at that. So, uh, you know, you just have to be willing to do whatever it takes. You know, if I was like, well, I don't want to battle, you know, well, I wouldn't have been on TV then. So, uh, you know, you have to, you know, just prove your worth and be likable. Yeah. Uh, related to that, though, um, one of my favorite um, stories about you, uh, I, I believe his name's Leroy. The, uh, was he your butler? I, sorry if I got his uh, job wrong. What was he exactly? No, he was my butler, uh, house uh, taker, caretaker, if you will, because my dad was uh, 
on uh, a lot of business trips and um you know he was he was traveled a lot so uh you know leroy was uh you know like my second dad and really the uh first um person who died in my life that i cared about like he was the first person that uh died that i like cried and um you know i can remember the phone call like it was yesterday uh you know his brother ernie called me and uh you know i was probably 12 or 13 at the time and um he said uh earl can i talk to your mom leroy's gone I'm like, oh, where is he? Like, because I'd never experienced death in my life. And, uh, you know, then he's like, no, he's gone. He, he died this morning. And so uh, once a year I go to his uh, grave. Uh, he's buried in the Veterans Cemetery. Uh, so, uh, and uh, Benji Aflalo in my last roast battle had yeah. a great joke about Leroy. Uh, you know, so. Well, one of my favorite stories is like, he, you're, t- you're saying that like he would be, amongst like the only black people in Bel Air oh, yeah. who would be driving a car. He would drive you home from school and you get pulled over. Did that like affect your view on race or just growing up with him? Did that kind of change how you saw, saw things or was it more just the fact that he was like one of your best friends and, uh, and that was like something. Cause I, cause every time you talk about Libra, there's obviously like you had a, you have a, a great affection for him and he made a huge impact on your life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you got to understand the 70s in Bel Air, there weren't any black people. It was like, yeah, you I mean, OJ and Kareem. Yeah. But really? OJ and Kareem and, and Will Chamberlain. <laughs> um, you know, this was a, at a time in the NBA where half the league was white still. So, <laughs> you know, uh, and that's why I'm so comfortable around gay people. Like, I live yeah. on Larrabee, the gayest street in, in, <laughs> in really literally the world. It um, sounds gay when yeah. you say it. Larrabee. Larrabee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like that goes to my mom. Uh, you know, my mom didn't leave the house a lot, so the nail person would come over. She was a lesbian. The hairdresser, gay. Uh, the uh, My mom was a very fashionable lady, um, so the wardrobe you know, consultant or whatever you want to call it, gay. Um, so I was raised around gays and blacks. And, and so that's why I'm, you know, comfortable around, you know, like I don't think many straight people would be comfortable on my uh, street. Yeah. You know, I walk my dog late at night. I see uh, guys fucking in the bushes, <laughs> uh, guys uh, jacking off at the uh, car wash, uh, and I'm like, oh, hey, guys. Like, I'll literally say hello to them. <laughs> and they're like, hey, welcome to the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, and that's why, uh, you know, it's funny that, you know, I, I did the house racist thing on roast battle, but I, I'm I'm the furthest from racist. Like, yeah. I, because uh, Leroy was like, I would go to, he would take me to Sambo's, like, uh, which was, uh, which is the crazy, it just goes to show you the 70s. There was a restaurant chain. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, this is amazing. Not restaurant, but a chain <laughs> of restaurants <laughs> called Sambo's. And the owners tried to, you know, fake it by saying, well, no, it's just a combination of our names. Because <laughs> I think one guy's name was Sam and, and the the other partner, his name had Bo in it. So they're oh, no, it's like, it's just a combo of our names. But yet the logo was like 
some black baby with a <laughs> I forget the exact logo but if you if you google sambos it's a pretty racist uh thing and he Leroy would take me almost every day on uh in Santa Monica there but they had sambos. good food that's the most important oh, they great part of <laughs> they're still I think the it's the only sambos left is in Santa Barbara and I go there every time I'm in Santa Barbara uh it's like a not a it's a diner like a Mel's diner. Uh, what what was uh what what would Leroy get and what would you get at Sambo's? You know I'm not gonna lie I don't remember. Uh, but uh, you know it's like well all the Sambo's then got I think bought out by Denny's. So if you're <laughs> you know it's like Denny's type of food oh, okay. burgers uh, you know uh, the, oh, okay. the, the scramble I forget what the, what's the scramble at Denny's oh the grand slam the whatever. grand slammy so uh, but it just goes to show you the 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 wackiness of the environment that I lived in that I had a black dude and Leroy was black like Dikembe Mutombo black and what was his personality like um you know he was uh, very subservient was he, was he funny though. You know, I don't really remember him being that funny, uh, but he was very, uh, you could tell he was humbled and uh, hard, incredibly hardworking, you know, would do anything my parents told him to do, uh, you know, that he loved my parents because, you know, they took care of him, probably paid him cash under the table. So, uh, you know, he was uh, a very fatherly like figure to me and my uh, brothers and sisters. So uh, that's why I've always been... Uh, what were like some of the things he taught you? Just hard work, really. Uh, you know, him and his brother uh, Ernie loved each other. So I, I you know, I saw how uh, to deal with your siblings. You know, I mean, they argued a lot, but you could tell they loved each other. Which uh, I think uh, me and my siblings, you could probably we don't argue a lot, uh, but like you know, you could tell uh, he taught me how to you know love a brother or sister, I guess. Uh, and uh you know so i got the best of both worlds i got like the brashness of my father you know who's a big guy like a you know a gun-toting you know superhero and leroy was you know the hard work and i mean my dad was an incredibly hard worker he was traveling all over the world to make money but uh, leroy was just uh blue collar and the guy who showed you firsthand what hard work looks like like you saw the results with your dad but you saw Leroy actually work hard first. Yeah, I mean, he was a hardworking black dude who probably had a pretty shitty life. Oh, yeah. Uh, from the standpoint of, you know, when you think, you know, he was a slightly older black dude in the 70s, so he grew up, you know, as a, a black uh, youth, teen, and young adult in the 50s and 60s when, uh, you know, you know, people think Trump was is racist, you know, he grew up with the Watts riots and, you know, the horrible, horrible time to be a minority in this country. So I think he was uh, probably pretty psyched to have a, a white family treat him so nicely. I mean, he went to Christmas dinner with us. I mean, he was our family. So uh, that's why I grew up, uh, you know, very accepting to all races and, and you know, uh, sexual uh, preference people you know like the hairstylist was at a lot of our family dinners and stuff like that so uh you know which is weird because you know growing up with uh bel-air country club you know that i think they had one black member so that was a, a another that was where i saw maybe not the greatest side of uh 
you know, white people was, you know, I, I remember like asking my dad, dad, are there any, are there any Jewish members here? And he's like, only one admits it. Uh, like, what, what does that mean? Uh, and I noticed there were no black members and like no Mexican members, um, except the caddies, you know? And then I, when my parents moved to Florida, you know, they, I think the Bel Air said, Hey, you know, Mr. Skakel, you, you don't really have the membership where you can be an out of town member. Your son's going to have to join if he wants to keep coming up here. And I'm like, yeah, it's too much money. I want to join a club that has minorities and stuff. <laughs> so I joined Mountain Gate Country Club, which is on top of the Sepulveda Pass. It's a public course. It's a, basically a private public course. Uh, they let everyone join, blacks, much more, Mexicans. Much more accessible, yeah. Yeah, and I thought it was great. I was like, wow, this is like much more who I identify with being now in my life than you know, a snooty country club guy. <laughs> and uh, the first day I joined Mountain Gate, uh, my clubs got stolen. <laughs> so I haven't played golf since. <laughs> and I used to be pretty good. Like for someone who didn't like practice a lot, I would just play. Um, you know, yeah, pretty- I, I that's that's my all-time favorite story. Um, the, the story you told about... Um, the black caddies and you shot really good golf one day yeah yeah i mean i, I mean that's when i heard the n-word was at, uh, up at bel air country club you know the first time i heard it uh yeah. so i mean i'm sure it's changed now but it just it just shows like you know the the time period you came from yet who you became and so i think i think it's actually uh, uh it's pretty inspirational and cool to see uh, and hear all that i just it's just it's it's amazing to see this time period where there's a restaurant called Sambo's that you know that like a black that some black guys actually choosing to go to and you know and it's like and then all all this stuff it's like it's just such a weird mix and it's such a different time but it's it's cool to see you know the products of that time as well yeah I mean one of them you couldn't make blazing saddles now you couldn't uh, do like the Kentucky Fried movie which. Had a great scene, uh, you know, Rex Kramer, the world's most dangerous stuntman. And they show this guy putting on a stuntman's uniform and you think he's getting ready to do a motorcycle jump over, you know, whatever, 30 buses. And uh, he puts on his uniform and he walks into a, a middle of a, a dice game. It's like eight or nine black dudes. And he just <laughs> yells out the N-word and starts running. <laughs> like, you couldn't do that today and like or like the richard Pryor chevy chase sketch you know yeah they, oh my god on saturday night yeah, live you that, couldn't that, do that that one was one of my favorite things i've seen where it's like damn they were they went harder and edgier than we really ever could in, in my era like you you kind of realize that we're a little bit more politically correct like if you watch the the roasts uh like the dean martin roasts i actually prefer those because i feel like they may be subtle, but they're uh, like some of the stuff that you hear is actually even crazier and edgier in a way. Well, because it wasn't dirty. It was more innuendo. Yeah. And, you know, nowadays, most of the roast, like, you know, with Pam Anderson is like, you know, she's got a big pussy. And like, you know, like if Don Rickles was roasting Pam Anderson, he he would have said it in a non-dirty way that would have been twice more effective. Yeah. Or, you know, Foster Brooks you know his roast joey bishop yeah russell i mean there were uh, so many good uh roasters back oh my god i mean foster brooks uh 
his roast of Don Rickles is to me the greatest roast set ever. And it's basically him for five minutes hinting that he fucked Don Rickles' wife. Uh, and, but it, not one dirty word was said, but it was just innuendos. And, uh, and no one's ever played intoxicated as well as that, man. I think, I think if people don't realize that, like people who are trying to do a intoxicator or a drunk impersonation, it's all, uh, uh, you know, kind of referencing Foster Brooks's impression, really. You yeah, know, I mean, it, it's a shame that the the youth of today, you know, people who are like probably thirty and under, don't really know who Foster Brooks is. So yeah, he's he was one of he was one of my favorites. And looking back on those roasts, like when I did roast battle, um, that was really my biggest influence. I wanted to have the innuendo and the the weird kind of st- the the more subtle humor that they had, and I, that was my big inspiration for it. Right. Um. But you know the. I want to get back to the jellies. I have so many questions. Sure. First of all, um, uh, have you, like watching the show, have you like that? You said that they had to tone it down to get it on Adult Swim, and I can tell because it's one of the darkest shows I've ever seen. The themes are incredibly interesting, and just the the crazy things that they they have. Like first of all. The, the the family's called the jellies correct yes this is hilarious i mean this might be a spoiler but one of the characters is called ky jelly <laughs> i mean that's the funniest shit it's so great they're inexplicably um they're inexplicably sea creatures and um i actually uh, i listened to an interview with tyler the creator and I want to get your reaction to this. It, he's like, why'd you make them jellyfish? He's like, well, I'm afraid of jellyfish. And he's like, they're fucking evil. We can't, you know, and he's like, we can't take away sea turtles because they're the only thing that eats jellyfish. And so he was like going in this whole thing. Like, first of all, what do you think of the fact that you're playing a jellyfish? Like, did you, were you ever weirded out by that? Like you're voicing a jellyfish father and your, your kids, uh, your kids black, you know, like, did you ever, did you ever think like what a weird world this is? Yeah. I mean, it's a completely oddball idea, but I think that's Tyler. Like he comes up with these like, you know, interesting uh, ideas all the time. So uh, it didn't really surprise me that he created it and, and Lionel Boyce, who's uh, a great dude. He would always, uh, I basically uh, uh, recorded every episode with Lionel. He would say the lines to me. What, what, uh, was Tyler there? Um, yeah, he was there. Uh, you know, I did the whole season in one day. Oh, wow. That's so. the cool part about voiceover. It's kind of a cush gig. People don't realize that. Like, it's, it's uh, if you can get in and you're, you're a talented voiceover artist, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to working fast. Like, I think they had scheduled me for three sessions, probably three to four uh, episodes, uh, you know, session, and then it was going so fast. They were like, "Do you want to just do it all today?" Oh, I oh, I didn't realize that's that. That does help. It makes you more efficient. You're let you're more cost productive. That's that actually is interesting. Well, I think it also helped that you know maybe in one or two of the episodes, I just had like two lines. Oh, okay, or, or something. Uh, because each episode almost focused on a different uh, family member you know like one episode was my high school reunion so that was primarily my episode you know and then i think one episode was my wife's alcoholism uh so it was a little more centered on her and then uh you know uh the great doc willis who uh this is another cool story the jellies doc willis was uh, the longtime parking lot attendant 
at the comedy store. Nice uh, guy. Oh, he's the best. But he, he and he was in a lot of the episodes as the militant uh, black uh, dude, uh, and he he was hilarious. But that's you know the show gave to a lot of people. You know, like Doc was you know a longtime comic. Uh, you know, did you work with Phil Lamar to one of the voiceover artists? Um, no, that's the weird thing is we all I, I well I can't I don't know how that those guys worked, but like. You know, I had a lot of scenes with my wife. I've never met her. <laughs> um, you know, I had That's scenes so with uh, Tyler that, uh, you know, we never... Uh, how they did it with me was Lionel would uh, read the whole script to me and then I would say my lines and then he would be my wife or, you know, uh, he would be uh, Tyler or uh, anyone I had. You know, there's a scene where I'm with uh, Doc and my friend Adam Gifford who played Chata, uh, and he was like in the 80s metal band Paradise. Uh, we had several scenes where all three of us were in, in it together, but I was never, I never recorded with them. So I think a lot of these uh, scenes were just spliced together, like, okay, Earl, these are Earl's lines, let's sync them up with Doc's lines. And uh, so it's really uh, fascinating how they put this together, like we all were in the room together. That is that is really interesting. And your wife, I think, is played by AJ Johnson. Is that? Yeah, oh, she's great. But I've never met her. <laughs> and it's it's really interesting because it, it's like it is fascinating because when you hear it, it sounds like you guys have chemistry. Yeah, so I mean, funny. I'd kind of like to meet her. <laughs> That's uh, so funny because I think uh, they switched out a few actresses and actors from the season on the phone app. Um, because I thought that my wife in the, uh, the the first season that was on the Golf Media app was different. Uh, oh, okay. And I think a few other actors were... Uh, I know Doc was on that season as well. So, uh, you know, it's like the Sons of Anarchy uh, spinoff show, The Mayans. Uh, you know, I guess they did a, the pilot and they, they're having right now to reshoot a lot of it um, for whatever reason. So... Uh, you know, I think it was a very similar uh, type thing. And even on Sons of Anarchy, the uh, the guy who played Clay Morrow originally, he did the pilot with Scott Glenn, um, you know, from A Silence of the Lambs. And I mean, this, okay. uh, but then I, I guess it wasn't quite working. So they brought in Ron Perlman, and, you know, the rest is history. The show is like really fascinating. It's de It's dense. The, um, the animation is so interesting. Like, uh, uh, there's a lot of the jokes come from the the animation itself. There's a lot of visuals that are incredibly funny. It's a really, it's a, it's just, it's an interesting show. I remember there's one scene where like exhibit. I'm not. This isn't much of a spoiler, but he has superpowers, and some of the things he does, those superpowers are just hilarious. I mean, it's a really, it's a, it's a really interesting. Show, were you surprised by how dark it was though? Because like, there's some like dark scenes and like some dark themes, and uh, in comedy, it's like, uh, were you surprised that it would be so edgy? No, not uh, knowing Tyler. I mean, I kind of started listening to his music and um, like doing a little bit of research uh, just to go. Uh, this guy's my boss. I should know a little bit more about him. Um, and his, you know, his music's pretty out there. You know, it's pretty edgy and. Uh, you know, like there were some, you know, episodes where I think that our daughter has her, I, I'm still not, I, I think it was her period that where she would squirt out this black juice. <laughs> like, 
you know, and that's, I think, but I didn't get what the black juice was. Like, it, I think it was like an inside joke on, you know, uh, that I didn't like to this, squid with ink and right. stuff. Yeah. So I was like, uh, you know, okay. I, I don't know if this is like a, a black joke that I'm not getting or, or it's like a squid and ink. Yeah. That's, right. that's hilarious. So, Cause yeah, it's like, I don't think jellyfish squirt ink, but it's like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like they're taking uh, a squid stuff, putting on a jellyfish stuff. That's, that's kind of funny. Yeah. yeah. I kind of like, Oh, I'm not sure if this is Tyler's wacky sense of humor or, yeah. you know, uh, when I'm supposed to be, uh, you know, like a joke I'm not getting there, but uh it's very funny and like you know i'm an 80s kid so i didn't get a lot of the 90s like when he's in the 90s yeah uh, the gangsta's paradise thing. you know I, yeah. I like i got the crisscross the reference you know and then but you know the, the coolio was yeah there was that. there was some stuff for uh my generation there was like uh in the in the pilot this is much of a spoiler there's um there are a lot of like 90s references and they're all kind of in one building and so you're kind of walking the halls and you'll see all these 90s references you'll see you'll see uh an older version of you know hey arnold or sonic or coolio there's there's very it's really interesting and and that pilot that gangsta's paradise what um that the those scenes at the at gangsta's paradise itself the the location are hilarious it's and it just shows the potential of the show because the way he thinks out the, the animation he um it's it's just so much more vivid and cr it, he's crazy in like the best way possible where it's just like his anim his imagination there's nothing like it um when you are doing when you're looking at when you're looking at the script, is there any way that you can imagine even to, for it to even come close to what the finished product is, or is it always just like a massive surprise from what you read to what you see? I mean, it's a surprise because, like, uh, you know, it, it's overwhelming. Like, you know, to do nine or ten scripts in one day, you just kind of like, you know, it all kind of blends into one big thing because you you know you and it, there's nothing visual for me to look at i'm just reading script so uh it was always fun for me to see like the finished product and you know to remember like the scenes with my wife you know it was just me and lionel in a, in a really really nice studio um doing these lines and uh they talked about like a house in studio city was this like uh they the, i remember they're like talking like they made this they made the um the the whole the whole script they were like we were just uh, i think they were like smoking weed in a house the studio city they were sitting around a table and that's how they made the whole script for like the whole episode so uh i don't know if it was that place but sorry well i mean there was the first season on the phone app was uh done in someone's uh, uh basically uh really nice house up in the hills uh, in a, in their own studio that's like cool. this i don't know who it was i'm assuming they were in the music business because it was harry nielsen-esque it was i mean it was uh the, the where the mics were set up there was uh you know probably 10 guitars and drums and uh keyboards so it was definitely i would say music producers home and uh the sound booth was had probably uh I mean, I don't know much about equipment, but definitely a couple hundred grand worth of uh, wow. you know Pro Tools and 
uh, you know, I don't know if this was Jimmy Iovine's house, uh, <laughs> but it was a nice setup. You'd uh, have to trade in all your uh, Steelers footballs to make this. Oh, yeah, maybe <laughs> even a bit more than that. So uh, that was kind of neat to do it in someone's house. And then uh, the, the second season, first season on Adult Swim was done, uh, you know, to recording studio in hollywood that was uh i mean i mean millions of dollars worth of gear in this i mean it's a recording studio i'm sure they uh do many tv shows there and uh so it was and it's weird because it's like in the middle of the city uh on santa monica boulevard you drive by, i've driven by this place uncountless amount of times and to know that there's an incredibly nice and expensive studio in this nondescript building. Uh, it's, it, I love, you know, makes you, whenever you're driving around the city and I go, what's in that building? You, you know, <laughs> so it's pretty, uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. Uh, and it was, it was an honor to be on it. Like everyone treated me so nice and it was very much, uh, it was like a family. I didn't even think they really had auditions for this thing. It was like, hey, who has a deep voice? Get that guy from Roast Battle. Who, uh, you know, who who would be good for his wife? We'll get, uh, you know, this, you know, it was very much like Roast Battle. It was a very family-oriented, you know, all-for-one type of vibe, which explains why both shows are successful. And I'm Dying Up Here was the same thing. Like, I'm sure they had auditions for that, but, uh, you know, like, you know, how I got on I'm Dying Up Here was uh, someone had recommended me, like, get that guy from Roast Battle, the guy, the wacky character, you know, so. It's, yeah, it's, it's, so all, yeah it's all just building relationships. He seemed to always be, like, the nice guy in the room. I mean, um, I can be a dick when I have to be uh, to certain people, but uh, I try not to. Takes uh, much more energy to be a dick or whatever to someone, uh, but... Uh, you know, it's really a short-term buzz, you know, try and be a good person. You know, last uh, year or two, I was maybe uh, fell out of line in that way of thinking. But, uh, you know, I uh, try and be a good person usually pays off in the end. I mean, you know, it, the only time you haven't been a good person I've seen was on Tuesday nights, and it was hilarious. So, well, I mean, you know, I mean, roast battle brings out the more competitive side of me, because at the end of the day, it is a competitive show. Like you're, whether you're roasting or even when you're hating, you know, I'm sure Cena could tell you that. Like, you know, you're in competition to get laughs. The yeah. judges now are much more involved than they were in the earlier days of the show. You know, you're not in competition with Moses, but you know, you're, he's getting laughs. So you have to get laughs. The judges have to get laughs. The wave has to get laughs. The battlers have to get laughs. You know, especially if the scenario when the battle, if the battlers don't get laughs, then the judges and the haters, they all feel like they have to compensate for the fact that this is a dead battle. Yeah, and then Meyerowitz, the, the autistic thunder, he's yeah, getting laughs, him, yeah. you know, cause he has some funny lines. He'll yell out when a, like when it's a, a squash match, you know, he'll yell out, finish him. And, you know, <laughs> you know, so then it puts the pressure on the Cena or the yeah. wave to go, okay, I, he just got to laugh. I know I got to say something. And, um, so, but it's a family vibe. Like, you know, uh, even battlers who go against each other, it's like, uh, there's a, resp- you know, it's like hockey fighters. I think for the most part, uh, you know, most hockey fighters are friends. Like they just realize it's a job we got to do. Um, 
you know, I got to fight you, but we'll have beer after. I think that's the, the coolest part of this podcast is I've learned a lot of different ways that Earl has incorporated himself into these like weird, wacky and unconventional families. But it's like, you know, throughout your own family or like the jellies family or the roast battle family or the I'm dying up here family, you always kind of find a way to weave yourself in and make yourself one of the loved ones of the family. And uh, do, you, do you really think that's like in the end, that's like your biggest skill in comedy is like, you know, making your being able to incorporate yourself into other people's th- uh, things like that? Because I think in comedy, not everyone's a good team player and you are. So do you think that's one of your best skills? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not uh, the best roaster. I'm not, you know, there's many, many, many people out there who are better at it than me because they, they get off on it. You know, <laughs> uh, I don't, but, uh, you know, I, I think because, uh, you know, I'm uh, good at the performance end of it, you know, it, you know, it, it compensates for me not really, really liking saying jokes about my friends you know pointing out their physical defects or whatever uh you know same thing with the jellies they they could have like i said they could have gotten a million other uh, established uh, voiceover actors uh i'm dying up here uh, i told uh, adam you know what i liked about i'm dying up here is i think it was a different producer for, or director for each episode uh, which is kind of rare you know uh but that, that's how kind of miami vice did it the tv show like it would always be someone different. Um, so you got a different take. You know, the show never got really stale for a while because, you know, each episode had a different set of eyes. But I told Adam the, who uh, did the finale, I'm like, I'm probably the worst actor you'll ever work with, but I can be funny. And he's like, I've worked with a lot worse than you. Uh, <laughs> so I think being, uh, you know, a chameleon and and being able to blend in like the predator in the background uh, is my best asset. And really even getting past at the comedy store was, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what was going through Adam's mind, uh, but, you know, I'm sure there was a hundred comics who were more successful and famous than me uh, who could have been showcased, but uh, it's like, okay, Earl fits in up here. Everyone loves him. I'll give him a shot. You know, it's like best selling just got passed uh, at the comedy store with Jerron Horton. And, uh, you know, Beth is like, I can't think of anyone on earth who fits in at the store more than her. And she's kind of an outsider because she's not really, she is now, but, you know, she never really was at the store a lot, but I'm sure it was like, you know, she fits in here. She's uh, very, very funny. Kind of got almost a, a dude's aggression on stage, but she's pretty you know she's like the best of both worlds and she's super cool um you know so she blended in and uh same thing with jaron cool guy very funny yeah i love jaron everyone loves him he was didn't he uh he was on i'm dying yeah he's uh really write an episode it's possible i don't know on that uh but i know he was uh writing on the show okay um but it's like you know it just pays to be nice and liked people want to work with people they like being around and everyone likes being around me. Like, cause I'm like quiet, you, you know, I, I don't really uh, make any waves. And I, I see uh, sometimes in roast battle, I, I see uh, people who are like a little more thirsty, 
they're a little overly aggressive and you know they'll never be you know i can't speak for you know the roast battle hierarchy but like you don't think moses or comedy central or jeff or whoever want you know want to work with people they are going to be cool with yeah. you know like in montreal it was very it's a lot of work yeah uh, you know we had to shoot little like pro wrestling promos you know with our opponents and you know we we had to shoot commercials in the daytime before our battles for the you know little previews and what ended up being commercials in seasons one and two it's a lot of work and you know so comedy central people they want to eliminate the stress as best they can and that's probably one of my favorite moments of roast battle is uh when i lost to sarah tiana you know i was pretty sad but i was also you know i realized i still had to battle k trevor wilson in eight minutes uh <laughs> so i'm walking up the stairs and i get up to the top of the stairs and the whole production crew and there was a lot of behind the scenes people like pas and just tons of assistants they all gathered in a circle and said you were our favorite we were all rooting for you <laughs> and you know some of those people are gonna be showrunners on an, you know another show on comedy central or netflix or whatever yeah, you never know and hey let's get that guy let's br at least bring earl in he was pretty cool to work with on roast battle yeah. and i think uh if more people uh would realize that they'd work more i um, I think this ties into the next story I want you to talk about because you briefly mentioned it on the last episode we talked about, but um, your showcase for the comedy store, you said it went a hundred times better than you ever thought it would. Um, and uh, could you kind of elaborate because you briefly mentioned it, but I think it's such a cool story. I want you to kind of elaborate on uh, why do you think it went a hundred times better than you ever thought it would? Well, I was uh, very, uh, you know, most of my stand up, I don't prepare, you know, I, I just have a catalog of i mean probably a thousand jokes maybe more in my head so you know it's like this weekend i was in at the bray improv uh hosting for Corey and chad and uh you know their crowds were pretty wild you know because they're you know it's not often i'm the least dirty person on a lineup um <laughs> but you know i to me i like i can't prepare a set list for that crowd you have to go up there and uh you know feel them and react, yeah it's like react. literally a quarterback surveying a defense like you have to go okay uh like last night in the late show they were pretty wild and there's like a couple gang bangers in front you know and they were like you know I, I have this joke where i say i'm a Steeler fan and they you know of course were like raiders homes and then so i did some shtick with them and then there was a girl huge tits with this fucking bodybuilder type dude and they were fun to play with but um the showcase was uh probably one of the few times i've ever had a set list and said do this joke this joke this joke and end on the sons of anarchy audition um so uh i was prepared but it was also once again goes back to being uh liked i mean so many comics came in the room that night because everyone was rooting for me like delia even came in and watched the whole set and I've never really seen him watch uh, anyone, but you know, his friends like Brian Callen or something. Uh, and like the whole comedy community was up there that night um, rooting for me. So uh, it was, and it was just a magical, it was like the perfect five minute set for me 
it just the first choke didn't kill but it did good second choke did a little bit better a third choke was kind of crossing the bridge to not killing but like heating up heating up and then that sons of anarchy joke killed uh and it was just like that's my time thank you and like i didn't get a standing ovation but it was you know it was pretty big ovation and uh you know uh everyone was coming up to me you're past dude you're past i'm like i don't know you know i'm still that's the mom going i killed <laughs> that's the jew but Jewish uh, mom. you know i remember tony hinchcliffe and jesus trejo were walking with me to carney's after and they're like dude you're gonna you're in bro i'm like i don't know you know i'll just i'll just be happy with one spot on a wednesday at two in the morning and they're like well that attitude will change uh, <laughs> and then uh, the next day brian moses called me this is when he was still working the phones and said, you can call in for your spots. So, uh, but he, uh, once again, it goes back to being liked, you know, I mean, there's a million people, Adam could have showcased, you know, the same thing with Beth and, and Jerron, um, you know, it, you know, there's so many comics in the city, but I think, especially at the comedy store, you know, it's a little more of a gang mentality up there because so many of the employees have been up there a long time. You know, the managers have all been up there for, you know, 10 years. Uh, you know, all the waitresses have been up there uh, for long, for the most part a long time. Uh, so it's a family up there. So you have to, it's very hard, I think, to get in up there because uh, if you're an outsider, it's like, will this outsider fit in? Uh, like Bestelling does, but you know there might be another comic, you know who's on TV, but it's like they wouldn't fit in here. So uh, you know, like at the Improv and Laugh Factory, they're a little more corporate. You know, the Improv uh, almost has a store vibe where it's a family. You know, Paige and uh, Rita uh, have been up there, for, you know, for a very long time. So uh, I think they bring a family vibe to it. Uh, you know, Laugh Factory. I don't know what the hell is going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely the distant third on that in that it's, equation. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's just. I mean, I would love to be in up there to be honest with you, but like, uh, I'm happy with the store and the improv. Uh, you know, because I I've That's known good. Paige forever, and Rita I've known since before I did comedy, so I always feel welcome there, even though I'm not like a, a technical regular there. Uh, and the store is just like it's. You know, there's just not a club like it on earth. Uh, and that's why everyone's trying to get in up there because it's like you're literally a made member when you're past there. You know, your name's on the wall. For, it's like the Stanley Cup. Your name's on that wall forever. Even if you don't get spots there anymore, your name's on that wall forever. That's and, such a good uh, analogy at the Stanley Cup. I love that. I never, yeah. I never thought about it like that, but that's so true. Well, it's just like, I mean, I still get a buzz. Uh, sometimes I'll walk Lois up sunset and beyond and uh, i'll end up on my way home walking uh past the store and i i never get old seeing my name on the front did like, you get to choose where it no was that's the great thing is it worked out like literally i probably have one of the best spots uh for the listeners where is it it's you know if you walk up to the comedy store it's on the front wall right in the middle Right by Rob Schneider's name and Anthony Jeselnik and uh, oh, Rob Schneider. That does mean a lot that you're you're near him. Well, it is kind of funny that no, because it's like you know the the the, the you know, open linked, yeah, form for That's, years. That is really cool. Um, and and uh, Anthony Jeselnik, uh, a guy after your heart. He uh, he roasts people similar. Oh, he's to you, uh, so. yeah. I That's mean that. Good. That's a good combo. 
Well, I, I, I wouldn't say I started with Anthony, but like we did a lot of rooms back in the day together. We, we never were really that friendly just because he's kind of, uh, I think him and I are almost in a weird way the same. Like we're, we're almost shy to a degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we never really like broed out. Uh, but uh, after Montreal and roast battle, he, uh, you know, he was talking to uh, someone in the uh, back VIP bar of the comedy store and uh you know, I didn't want to interrupt him, so I just kind of walked by him, and he grabbed me by the arm and said, "Amazing job at roast battle." And it was like, That's "Wow!" Cool. I'm like, "Well, you know, I, a lot of people don't think I beat Jimmy Carr." And uh, he looked at me, he goes, "You beat him." <laughs> and it was like to have that. He probably wouldn't even remember that, but I'll remember that for a very long time because you yeah. know he's a big comic. Uh, he didn't have to say that to me, and uh, you know, so. Uh, but that's another dude who's you know once again. I mean. I, on a much higher level than me. Like everyone loves that dude. Like, you know, he works constantly. Yeah, he's great, but it's like, he's funny. He shows up, does his thing. So, uh, yeah, it's like everyone may love Anthony, but you know, everyone loves Earl at the store. Like he's, he's one of those guys kind of like coach T for instance, he's a hundred percent or hundred percent approval rating essentially. I don't know and about you can, hundred, but you can, you know, there's plus or minus 1%, you know, we'll take out, you know, the outliers, but you're pretty much one of the, the more Teflon people at the store and that people just adore you. What is it about how you navigated the waters of the comedy store and the improv versus how others might navigate it that made you more likable or is it just the fact that you were in your inherent character was just more likable well it's just the way i was raised to be good to everybody you know it so much goes back to how you're raised and your upbringing and like my dad like i said you know, an hour ago, uh, literally was friends with prostitutes and billionaires, and he treated the <laughs> prostitutes better than he treated the billionaires. Like that's he amazing. was, he would always give that's them money amazing. for Christmas. Well, it's true though, and like that's how I am. I treat Boone Shakalaka, who's the the homeless guy at the comedy store who like sells stolen merchandise. I treat him as nice as I do Russell Peters, and uh, so I don't think i have too many enemies i mean really the people that i don't like there's very few uh even they like me like or they can't they might not like me because they probably sense i don't like them but even they can't say anything bad about me yeah you know which uh what could they say i mean uh you know even people who don't think i'm funny i think like me you know not everyone's gonna think i'm funny or you or or you know uh i mean i remember one time I took my friend to see George Carlin at the Hermosa Magic Club, and this is toward the end of his life, but he was still a killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my friend walked out after five minutes. I'm like, what are you doing? This is like literally the greatest comic of all time. Yeah. I mean, that's like... Mount Rushmore. I'm, oh, he's beyond Mount He's not even on Mount He's on... Uh, he's above Mount Rushmore. Well, that's like Richard Pryor, Lenny Carlin. I mean, sorry, Lenny Bruce. And Lenny Richard, Carlin, uh, funny dude. <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry. You know, nah. Lenny Bruce and, you know, George Carlin. Those are really the three. Yeah. I mean, it's like... Uh, and it's so... Like the Wayne Gretzky of comedy. Like, yeah. there's no one above Carlin to me. Um, I mean, there's Chappelle and Rock and, and certainly others in the conversation. But, like, he's the OG... Uh, and my buddy walked out after five minutes and I'm like, what are you doing, dude? He's like, I'm going to go look for pussy on the boardwalk. <laughs> so, you know, if, if someone's going to go look for pussy on the boardwalk overseeing George Carlin live, 
can you imagine what they say about you or me? Exactly. Um, but but it, I think even people who don't like my stand-up will, like when my car pulls up into the driveway of the comedy store or on Melrose uh, to go to the improv, it's like, hey, Earl's here. Mm. Like even people who don't, you know, I know some people didn't like me on Roast Battle when I would roast because they're like, well, you don't really write your jokes. Uh, you know, I'm like... Uh, bon jovi i hired desmond child to write the songs and then i sang them uh you know even yeah, you're elton john you have a bernie Toppin with you yeah i mean i you know i'd write a few jokes but you know like i said in, in regards to roast battle it, it's it's not really my normal sense of humor to sit there and look at you and go well you're uh blah 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 yeah. uh so i'll pay someone to write how you look or your comedy and whatnot um so uh but it goes back to even on a show like Roast Battle, which is very alpha male, very competitive. You know, uh, I got to get on TV because this guy or girl's on TV now. And, uh, you know, so there's, I find the show to be a little more uh, aggressive, uh, like with people trying to climb over the others. So, you know, they can get on the next season or whatever in the rankings yeah that's actually what i wanted to touch on is like how do you navigate the competitive cutthroat part of the comedy store because that to me is the toughest part uh like because i do i definitely feel that vibe you're talking about with the competitive nature of people at the comedy store so i want you to elaborate more of how do you navigate all these different comedians trying to compete for so few slots essentially like what what is that like for you? Oh, it's tough when you, you know, I, it's like there's uh, in the original room on, you know, tonight, I don't know who's on the lineup, but there's 15 spots. It's probably 200 comics who are worthy of those 15 spots. And, uh, you know, the talent coordinator has to, you know, craft the lineup where it flows, you know, um, you know you're you're just humbled and honored to get the spot you get and and you know i i don't know how adam or Paige at the improv does it uh you, you know i don't know how they choose the lineups but uh you know you you just uh like jimmy carr said uh you know when i was talking you know people think we don't like each other because of our epic battle uh but he's like he's awesome and he's gave me the best advice ever uh stay on worry about your side of the road and be funny and that's all you can do at the comedy store like you know last night i had to follow a murderer's row of comics eddie pepitone and eddie pepitone it was a packed or too i mean it was packed sold out and like eddie pepitone in a sold out room just murders the place like he's mm -hmm. just amazing and then josh wolf i love with, josh oh he's just the fucking best talk but, about a guy who's kind of like you where very likable everyone likes being around him he has that party vibe so yeah he's just a nice dude and like i remember doing shitty barry neal gigs in simi valley at a sports bar with um uh, josh like a decade plus ago uh <laughs> and it was like wow this guy's cool and, and then to see his star take off was cool but then you know josh is one of the few people who could follow eddie pepitone and josh killed and then i had to go on after josh and uh you know you just you kind of just do your thing and like i'm a different style than those guys 
I'm almost like a cross, a mix of Eddie and Josh. <laughs> you know, I don't quite yell, but you have to be animated to a degree following Eddie. And then Josh is very uh, cool guy, yeah. sense of humor. And uh, so I kind of had to blend my set into a combo, those two. And then, uh, you know, there's been times, uh, to me, one of the funniest dudes I know at the store is uh, Brian Holtzman. And if you don't know who Brian Holtzman is, I mean that that's that's the intimidating thing about this business when you see someone that funny like and of course to all of us making it's different but like why he isn't a household name is unbelievable to me and he's almost unfollowable because he's mm -hmm. such a monster like he's like eddie pepitone on steroids yeah and uh like to follow him it's like it's tough you have to like i had to follow him one night in the original room and like <laughs> It's, uh, you know, getting back to your question of how do you navigate the competitiveness, it, it, I think if you use it in the right way, it, it helps, it helps you become a better comic because you realize, you know, you're not going to be following someone unfunny at the store. Everyone's funny up there. It might be not your cup of tea, but everyone's funny. You got Jeselnik, Dalia, Theo Vaughn, Jason Galern, uh, Bastelling, uh, you know, just, a who's who of uh you know the hot comics of of today and in yesterday and and the future you know jack knight you know i mean it's just like it's amazing joe dosh it's just like the talent level up there is like really unbelievable um so that spurs you you know i write jokes every day out of fear of i don't want to bomb on these lineups I think Joe Rogan said it the best is like the store is so hot is you can't really do new material there. Like you can't take the chance of it bombing because you're following someone who's killing. Mm -hmm. you yeah. Know? <clears throat> and, yeah. And, that pressure. And you're bringing up someone who's going to kill. So like, you don't want to stand out as like, well, that person sucked. So, uh, you know, it's just how I navigate the murky waters of the comp you know, I find the stores uh, of the paid regulars. It's like a, there's a respect level there because people know how hard it is to be passed up there, mm -hmm. and at the I'm sure at the improv as well. Although I don't get a ton of spots there, uh, but you know, it's like people just know if you're on the line up there, whether you're going on at nine or you know you're bringing up Don Barris, you're good. So uh, you know, of course, there's a few haters there. Well, if this person's on you know i should be honest like not really dude our girl you know it's like i find that with a few uh roast battle comics like you know and, and roast battles I, if anything i'm the poster boy for ro for what roast battle can do for you you know it, it directly got me on the jellies and i'm dying up here um and put me on comedy central four nights and you know literally i was on comedy central more times and uh, you know, a, a 72 hour period than I was in 17 years. Uh, but I find that, you know, I had a debate the other night at the store parking lot uh, with a few comics of, uh, you know, roast battle and, and roast battlers and stand ups. And like some are good at one, some are good at the other. And I threw in very few are good at both because uh, it's a different skill set. You know, it's yeah. like, Roast battle to me is like a hundred yard dash. It's very quick, you know, 
uh, and stand up, you know, a 15, 20, 30, 45 minute set is a marathon. Yeah. And very few, uh, you know, are good at both. Yeah. Or it's like, if you need another analogy, there's a lot of chefs who can make a lot of food. Not most chefs can't make sushi though. Right. It's its own skill. Oh, absolutely. And sushi chefs have their own set of skills and it's like, and it can relate. Maybe it can, but there's not a lot of people who can do both. And it's a, and uh, I totally get that with roast battle. It's it's got its own skill set. Well, it's like uh, Usain Bolt is the world's fastest human. Probably not a good marathon runner. Yeah, you know, uh, because his training is short burst. Yeah, you know, he hits his stride and literally uh, two steps. Whereas <laughs> a marathon runner probably doesn't hit their stride till three or four miles in, uh, and so they probably wouldn't be good at. Uh, 100 yard dash uh yeah. so uh you know i i think you know it's it's like a slam dunk competition roast battle you know the, if you look at the people who win the nba slam dunk contest yeah they're not the best player on the team that is true usually yeah so i think uh, other than a few haters who think well i'm good at roast battle i should be past at the store it's like it's not it's a different skill set you well, the the competition level of comedy at the store is incredible um i it, there's you don't have to go into the or um they do a show called crack em up thursdays in the belly room and i've seen some people like are, are you know you know chris spencer yeah just lit up the room and then you kind of realize man there's people that i may not be aware of that i'm ju just being introduced to that are incredible and that shows you well if he isn't even on the level he needs to get and i think he's incredible it shows how far away you are and stuff like that, but it's good because it gives you something to look up to and admire and try to aspire to get to. But yeah, the comedy store, the, do you think it has, are, is this era comparable to like the other eras, like the eighties where it was just legendary for the competition in terms of talent when you had, uh, when you had so many different stars and how much time do we got left, by the way? Oh, we got probably about 15 minutes before cool, the recorder cool. breaks off into the other, cool, uh, cool. you know, 200 episodes in. I'm still not sure. I think at about the two-hour mark, it uh, flows into another, uh, the sound card. But we got a few, uh, we, you know, we're not rushed. But, I mean, I don't think, uh, I think the 80s was uh, a better uh you had to be really good to get on TV in the 80s. Well, some people consider that the pinnacle of the store, so that's why I'm asking. Well, because there was one, uh, there was three networks, uh, and I think maybe The Tonight Show was the only one that did stand-up. So if you got on The Tonight Show, you were a legend. And you look at the people who got on The Tonight Show, it's, you know... Uh, Gary Shandling. Gary Shandling. Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, Seinfeld, uh, you know... Uh, Carlin, uh, even though he was pretty established. Uh, but now there's so many uh, outlets for stand-up that, you know, it, it's great. It's a better opportunity um, to, uh, to get on TV because it's easier. So I think sometimes the, um, the, the quality of the comedy isn't as good because if there was only one network or one stand-up show, a lot of people wouldn't be getting on TV. Yeah. Wh what do you prefer? Do you prefer the, um, the, the era where there was only like a few slots and it was incredibly competitive or where it's, it's a lot more watered down now and there's, 
thousands of slots, but it really doesn't matter as much when you get in those. Like if you do stand up on a Conan or a Jimmy Fallon, it doesn't mean one one hundredth of what it meant if you were on the Johnny Carson show. Oh, yeah. So uh, what era do you kind of prefer? I mean, because it's kind of the curse of like there's a lot more opportunities now, but none of them mean nearly as much as what the opportunities meant in the 70s and in some ways. I mean, it's tough. Like as a fan, I like it in the 70s because I could, you know, you turn on The Tonight Show, you're guaranteed to see someone good on it, uh, you know, but has someone who is now almost 20 years into a stand-up career like... I'm happy there's Comedy Central, there's Netflix, there's... Uh, Adult Swim, Showtime. A, a, you know, uh, Showtime does stand-up, uh, HBO, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, Kimmel does stand-up, uh, Conan, The Tonight Show. Uh, so the opportunities to see me and my friends on TV as a stand-up are, are a hundredfold, and most of them deserve it. But, you know, uh, you know... I mean, not even Montreal means what it used to be. You know, there was a time where if you got Montreal or the Just Aspen, yeah. uh, the Aspen Comedy Festival, you got uh, development deals, picture and, and sitcom deals. And yeah, Dave Chappelle once said Just for Laughs was the turning point in his career. And now I don't think people who got Just for Laughs in our generation would would feel the same way necessarily. Yeah, I mean, there was a time if you got new faces at Montreal, you were a star. Like, and now it it, it means something still. Uh, I mean, I never got it, but you know, I also started comedy late, so I think new faces is a little more for younger people. So yeah, exactly. I probably never really had a chance at it, uh, but uh, I don't think anything means the same. Uh, you know, uh, even the last uh, the return of the jedi movie that's out now or what is it the last jedi yeah uh you know it, it's just kind of it's doing well but it's not you know uh it's number one movie by far but it's uh, i think 150 million behind of what the force awakens opened uh, so it, it's it's because there's overkill like yeah know? it feels like it feels like there were multiple star wars movies this year and stuff like that and there's yeah. just so it's everything's so saturated and uh, I, so I guess that brings me to this. You've had all these things happen to you in a year. And after 17 years, nothing happened to you. And then it all happens in a year. Do you feel different? Not really. Uh, you know, I, I certainly feel more respect in the business. Like, you know, when I walk up to the comedy store, you know, I get to go on an hour earlier now. And, and I was happy with going on, you know, when I was going on. But uh you know, I, I mean, I don't have too many haters, you know, there might be one or two roast battle people. Like, well, if he's on that show, I should be on it. But, uh, you know, I feel, uh, you know, pretty, pretty much the same, you know, cause I realized it could all be taken away in, you know, one day. Uh, you know, I've known people who were on sitcoms that had billboards all over the city and then it got canceled and they're having trouble finding work. Uh, you know, I was, I'm friends with Michael Talbot, who you know most of this generation would not know, but he was the uh, kind of heavy set detective on Miami Vice. Now that's a dude who was on the number one, probably the number one show of the '80s. Maybe the Cosby Show was, but I mean Miami Vice was the '80s, and he had trouble finding work after it. Like he literally now lives in Iowa on a farm, yeah, uh, because he could not get work after Miami Vice. So uh, you know, I realized that. 
you know, even though I'm on three episodes, uh, you know, I mean, Tyler, the creator so busy. He might think I don't have time to do the jellies, you know, uh, Showtime could say, well, you know, Earl was, he was funny and great guy, but, uh, you know, his character is not necessarily necessary. Uh, and you know, roast battle is, you know, I don't know what their plans are in terms of bringing people back, but there's, I, ah, we've already seen Earl, uh, you know, uh, so you know you or you know like i said the complete opposite could happen all three shows could bring me back and that could get me a four show and then you know i think you always have to uh look ahead like you always have to um you know which you know starts off with roast battle like i you know when i was doing the house hater and starting to put it together that you know they're never going to have this character on television it's just too wacky so if I want to be on this show anymore, I'm going to have to learn how to battle. And then I started looking at particular battlers and, and you know, going, okay, I like how this person battles. I like how this person battles. And I like how, you know, uh, this person perf- not necessarily battles, but performs like a little bit of showmanship. So I want to combine this person, that person, and that person. Uh, so, uh, you know, and that was forward thinking. And then that got me on Showtime. And then, you know, like, you know the jellies i'm like well maybe uh i can get on another adult swim show and then get on another one and maybe bill burr will say hey that, let's get that guy from the jellies on third season of my show or you know and i think that's how you have to think i think so many people uh you know get on a show like you know i'm sure there's certain people who got on uh, either season of roast battle and thought oh my god i'm gonna be famous and then <laughs> you know that i you know just you know, it didn't happen. And then now they're stuck because they didn't really think, you know, the next step. Ne- oh my God, what's the next step? Oh, well, you know, that's a year ago. They're already moving on to season three or whatever they're doing. So I'm probably not going to be brought back. So, uh, oh, you know, so whereas if they would have thought ahead and maybe, you know, been a little more forward thinking and, you know, they could have, you know, parlayed it into, you know, certain things so um i feel pretty confident asking you this because yeah uh, you've been you know you have you have a trajectory where you seem to be getting uh, a lot of good things and it seems like your career is on the up and up but knock on wood let's say all of it goes away you know tomorrow you know tomorrow yeah all three opportunities you've had somehow wash away is there anything that you could carry with you from these experiences that they can't take away from you that no matter what even if you were fired or whatever no matter what you'll always have something with you because of these experiences well i'm always gonna have my uh you know my fortitude of uh i've never really sold out like uh you know i was doing a show uh the other night where uh you know a couple comics were struggling and then this one guy was killing and he was just doing really hacky, uh, you know, um, just a million jokes that have been done before. Not stolen jokes, but like just the premises. Standard. Literally like, what's the difference between black and white people? But it was killing. Yeah. And then I got up there and I, you know, I, I wouldn't say I bombed, but I struggled with the crowd because they got used to like, uh, you know, white people be crazy. And I'm like doing, you know, my jokes and uh, that may be a benefit or might not be in terms of, uh, you know, I don't, 
sell out in that regard. I'm going to do my act. If you're on board, great. If not, I'm still going to do my act. And, you know, some nights it's tough. You know, the crowd's not with you and, you know, they want, you know, a certain style and I'm not, I'm going to give you dry, monotone sarcasm. Uh, deal with it. So, uh, I mean, that's the one thing I, I'll always have my, uh, I don't know if you'd say pride or dignity, but like, uh, I won't sell out, you know. That's cool. I, I think that's a good lesson of uh, good or bad, just uh, be you and do yourself and uh, it'll probably turn out better in the long run, no matter what. Well, hopefully. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it can be tough when you realize that, you know, if you be yourself, that might not be what a particular network or show is looking for. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, um, you know, what can you do? But, you but, know. but then maybe that opportunity wasn't meant for you anyways. And that's part of why, you know? Yeah. I mean, like I never got on at midnight, you know? Yeah. I saw open micers on that show. <laughs> no, I mean, but you know, it's like, you know, here I am not stars, the wrong word, but like, you know, one of the staples of a, a, a hit show on comedy central. And I can't even get on that show. So it's like, but you know what? Maybe my sense of humor wasn't for them. Maybe they didn't want someone who's just going to look into the camera and, and give like a, a dry monotone zinger. Um, or, maybe, or maybe the day you were shooting at midnight would have been the day that you met Tyler, the creator or something. You never know. Yeah. I mean, you never, uh, you know, I've gone up to the comedy store like tonight. I'm going to go watch Jason Galern. You know, you know, you know, maybe, uh, producers up there uh you know one night i and goes hey man you're that dude from uh, roast battle hey uh what are you doing man let's have lunch uh you know uh, and it wouldn't happen if i stayed home uh you know you never know in this business uh you know you might do a shitty bar gig uh which i try and not do anymore just because <laughs> it's just not my thing 20 years in i don't want to battle a crowd i want to be yeah. set up for success as best i can but, you know, you might do, uh, you know, I've done some gigs within the last year at a loud bar or sports bar or whatever where, uh, you know, there's a producer in the room. I, hey, you're really funny. I, I work on uh, Sons of Anarchy. Why don't you come in or, or whatever? So, uh, you know, I think someone said it. To, I think Steve Renazizi told me this. Uh, he said, uh, you know, no matter what type of situation you're in in a, in a comedy room, bar gig hell gig on the road or whatever you never know who's in the room watching so uh, always give it your best so that's like if i can give advice like even if you're uh, i don't know doing show up go up at the comedy store which is a complete clusterfuck of an open mic in terms of you know <laughs> the audience participation you know one day you don't know if maybe the, the booker of conan's up there yeah, you never know. It's not likely, but it's possible. Yeah, yeah, maybe they wanted it on accident. Yeah, or you know, if you have a, if you're doing a roast battle and and you're you're the first roast battler, you know, which in general is the crowd's a little light for the first battle because people mm -hmm. aren't up there quiet. You don't know who's sitting in that VIP section. Yeah. You don't know if it's a new intern at Comedy Central who's been asked to go scout the show or whatever. So uh, you know, like I didn't know who Tyler the Creator was. I thought he was some skinny black dude. He's <laughs> friends with Jamar. That's hilarious. And now look at it. Uh, now I'm... Because I don't think people realize how hard it is to crack the cartoon world or voiceover world. It's virtually impossible. 
Yeah. So this is what I wanted to ask. Um, do you see yourself continually doing this, like having more voiceover gig? Would you want to do this? Oh, I would love to. It's like the money's great. The, the, it's not that hard. I mean, you're literally just reading a script. And you have a very unique voice. Very deep and baritone, monotone, uh, you know, dry, uh, which there aren't a lot of, you know. Uh, you know, there's a lot of high-pitched voices and, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, people who are kind of in between, you know, so they can do a little of both. But, you know, very few people have my deep, you know, like I'm, <laughs> I can sound black, uh, you know, like my mom had a, incredibly deep southern accent and most people thought she was black when they were talking to her on the phone that's hilarious um, I, I, I never heard that before. yeah so she's probably <laughs> where i got some of my you know southern deep you know uh voice and my dad had a deep voice so it was like you know a lot of it's just genetics of having two parents who had strange vocal uh huh. you know sounds and i got the mixture of both and you know, so hopefully, uh, you know, like I would love to do South Park, you know, that's my favorite show. That's well, those most, guys, that, that's the most influential show for me uh, doing comedy. Uh, I mean, the Chappelle show and Jon Stewart are up there, but South Park is really the thing that influenced me. And uh, I, I compare every cartoon I watch to South Park. And I think the jellies is pretty damn good, actually. I think uh, it could be a black South Park. Like. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're like the boondocks was probably the best black cartoon I had ever seen. And I feel like Tyre, the creator is on a good trajectory and he has something uh, that could be like the boondocks or South Park because this show is really good. Another show that's like that legends of Chamberlain Heights. There's good shows, but I really think the jelly stands out. Um, and, uh, I really think people should check it out. Uh, uh, the Gangsta's Paradise episode, the pilot is phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think it just boils down to Tyler's so busy if he wants to do it. Um, but I'm sure he does. I mean, it's a lot of work. Him and Lionel Boyce, you know, it's a lot of work writing these things. And, uh, you know, he certainly didn't have to do another cartoon, but I think he, uh, it's a labor of love for him. And uh, those are often the things that, you know, you're, your biggest hits it's just something you stand you know like south park those guys were busy film writers and and stuff before south park but you could tell um you know south park in the beginning was just you know a labor of love for those guys and you know what are they 20 seasons in or something they started by taking pictures of every single frame of the show and having to adjust cardboard and now they are the third and the fifth richest people involved in comedy. So, I mean, it's uh, it is an incredible transformation, but um, I, I guess uh, we'll end it here with this. Um, I have one last question for you related to the jellies um, in the gangsters paradise episode. It's nostalgic and it's about the nineties and there's a bunch of characters and a bunch of things from the 90s in there we all know you're like an 80s head if you had to do like an 80s version of the gangsta's paradise episode what would be some of the <laughs> that was just for us what was sorry about... we're having sound difficulties <laughs> in my asshole <laughs> my bad i've had a lot of protein today oh that's so funny what would be some of the 80s things you would put into the like your version of the gangsta's paradise episode 
Well, I often like, you know, if we ever got to this level, I would like love to write an episode of the jellies where maybe, uh, we do an eighties gangsters, uh, paradise show where maybe I get locked into a, you know, a hospital for celebrities <laughs> from the eighties. You definitely have the Crockett and tubs. You'd have, you know, hair band members, you know, poison and rat, uh, you'd have a uh, max headroom, uh you know uh, the marlboro man although he might he might be in the 70s uh you know maybe uh would kiss kiss no kiss is kind of universe you know i think you'd cover that with poison and rat because i think uh you know kiss is more thought of as the 70s uh you know really ronald reagan uh you know uh Let's see, I mean, what else was going on in the eighties? Bill Cosby. No, oh, yeah, that would be uh, that'd you know, be big. Uh, um, Michael J. Fox because the family ties. Oh yeah. So there's a lot of funny things from the eighties that you could make fun of. Uh, was Doogie Howser in the eighties? I think he was nineties. Oh, okay. Uh, but maybe like uh, maybe the Cars, the band the Cars. Oh, you know? that's great. Yeah. Like, they just got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's so eighties. Yeah. Congratulations. So like Red. you know, MTV VJs. Maybe yeah. you have the locked up and you know they can't get out of the 80s uh you know uh, guns and roses i guess you could say were an 80s uh band although i just saw them at the forum with red band uh, <laughs> it was an interesting concert uh so uh, and you know maybe just people who you know the 80s action stars you know stallone uh seagal von dom uh you know i might even throw in jeff speakman because I love those obscure references. Like, so most people would, you know, who's Jeff Speakman? And that was the guy who, in like 1989, clearly they were trying to get like the next Seagal. So they had this guy who's uh, Jeff Speakman, who's like a karate master in real life, they had no acting experience at all. Uh, they put him in a movie called The Perfect Weapon. And it was, you know, it's just kind of a fun movie because it was so bad it's good. Yeah. Uh, maybe the Karate Kid, Ralph Macchio, oh, okay, uh, you know Patrick Swayze, you know stuff like you know guys like that. That could be that like, would be awesome though. That yeah, that could be like my gangsters paradise, and then maybe you know at the end of the episode somehow they end up in the 90s hospital and it's yeah. like who are you guys well who are you, you, know, <laughs> you know, so that's hilarious uh, but you know it, you know each episode was 15 minutes but it literally i'm sure took them 10 hours to write each episode well the animation's so dense too like i said there's so many visual gags that you have to watch the show and really get a sense of it like the gangsta paradise uh scene there's so many funny moments just of like what you see or like when you see exhibit and his superpowers i mean i go on and on but um but i mean i don't think people uh realize that you know wow it's 15 minute episode it must be you know you must be able to crank that out in you know an hour it's like no i mean each you know i was not involved in any of the writing but i can imagine i would estimate that it would probably took 10 hours to write a 15 minute episode yeah, and well, and I imagine it's like there's there's a lot of extra details you have to write down all the visual stuff because there's a lot of there's a lot of sight gags that they're trying to there's a lot of jokes they're trying to get just through visuals. So I'd imagine that the script would be very dense, you know, and it, and so yeah, it's it, it what what you guys have made, what Tyler the creator and Adult well, I didn't Center. make it. Well, I mean, you're a part of it. What you got, what you are a part of, it's some it's really cool. It's and it's actually really good, and I'm. Uh, I, I uh, urge people to watch it where, whenever they can. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, I'm always careful to not take credit. Like, you know, a lot of people think, you know, uh, 
when I say I was at Roast Battle on day one, I certainly didn't create it. That's Brian Moses, 100%. Mm. You know, uh, I helped build it, like the jellies, uh, but I certainly didn't create either show. Um, but just, uh, you know, I think if you go uh, through the minefields of LA comedy with a good head on your shoulders, uh, you know, uh, you'll be able to uh, last longer than most. Like there's a, an open mic comic right now who, uh, and I love him to death, but, uh, you know, he's not really going about the business the right way. Uh, you know, he put out a Facebook post talking shit about like 25 different comics. I, I, uh, say I have been friends with this person since I started comedy. We all love him. Oh, he's the best. I don't yeah. even want to say his name because then people might, you know, he's a great dude. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's just the wrong way to go about it. Like you're burning bridges with like, you now some of these people are, he, you know, he's right and they are idiots, but it's also like, you know, you're not at the level yet where you can make enemies. Yeah. You know, you got to wait till, you know, you at least have a little bit of juice in the business before you start turning into a maniac. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I'm probably just barely at the level where I can call out someone and say, I don't like you because yeah. you're a blah, blah, blah. And even that, I'm a complete nobody. Like, yeah. So, uh, you know, a lesson to all you youngins out there <laughs> uh, before you bully or talk shit about people, you should be at a certain level. <laughs> That is true. Now you have to sign off, dude. This is okay. your show. All right. Well, um, uh, this has been Eric. Make sure you get the plugs in. Yeah, this has been Eric Abenante. I actually, I do a little thing called uh, Channel 310. I have a couple friends. We have three different shows in the network. One is Secret Black People Meeting. One is The Podium, which is a sports show. And then one is Blunts and Br Brunch with Arthur Hamilton. I have a lot of cool shows. I, I This is the first time. I've done this thing three times. I finally have something to plug. I'm really proud of what I've worked on. Those are three cool shows. I'd love for you to check them out. All my friends do them, and I produce and direct and edit and them. So it's it's all labor of love on my side. So I'd love for you to check them out. One day, we hope to get on Tyler the Creator's level and have something like that. But thank you so much, Earl. This is like, I've, I've interviewed you three times now and it's been a blast each time. I really appreciate it. And it's been like two hours each time. And they've been uh, some of the more popular episodes, you know, yeah. because when I interview people, it's pretty much the same interview, like especially with Roast Battle. It's like, how do you battle? How do you prepare? It's, it's interesting because all the, the uh, answers are different, but like it's, you know, almost a copy and paste interview yeah uh and you know it, it's almost you know uh you know when i interview 80s metal guys or girls it's like hey what's it like playing with cinderella or rat <laughs> yeah so it's somewhat the same interview but uh you know you always uh you know you come well prepared you and casey moran uh you know or, or and robin tran all three of you really uh yeah all those are good episodes really good episodes but you guys all uh well guys and girl uh you know uh i'll come prepared and uh you know that's why it's almost two hours you know if you just you know oh, i want to interview not just me but whoever and, and just wing it probably be boring after t 30 minutes so uh you know thank you for preparing well luckily everything you've worked on is actually pretty good <laughs> so far well, not everything but like, <laughs> all, all the three things i mentioned the three major things i mentioned are very entertaining oh i've been lucky to be involved in three hit shows uh to varying degrees and just uh you know always you know looking at uh you know what what the next uh 
level is because there's always the next level no matter how successful you are there's always something more and you know nothing lasts forever as axel rose said in november rain so uh always keep your eye on top of the mountain <laughs> and this has been inappropriate eric <laughs> thank you soundcloud and itunes leave a review thank you earl thank you eric